the years of being connected to church community, I've had a lot of great experiences with amazing worship services and powerful sermons taught and, you know, amazing insights provided through deep Bible study and things like that. But I tell you, one of the most powerful experiences I've had when dealing with other followers of Jesus has been the times where people have gone out of their way to help us or to serve us. And one of the reasons why this is so impactful is because it's it's people helping people, right? One time when our house had been broken into and things had been stolen and, and our door had been kicked in, our door jam was broken and we had kind of just you know, duct taped the door closed to, to keep the weather out. Um, a couple of members from our church community came to check on us and we're kind of seeing if we needed anything. And thankfully, uh, nothing super important had been stolen. It was mostly things like computers and televisions and things like that. And um, they were going to be replaced by our insurance. But the biggest problem we had was our door and door jam needed to be replaced after being kicked in and broken by the robbers. And while we were talking about it, you know, one of the, the problems was that it was going to cost us $750, it was the estimate, to come out and have someone replace all of that. And we were just trying to figure out where's that money going to come from, who are we going to get to do that, and, you know, still kind of reeling from the shock of when you know, what had just happened with, you know, having your home invaded and your privacy, you know, really broken through that kind of an event. And here's the crazy thing. When I said that, this guy and his teenage son who were visiting us, they said, well, we can fix that. Let's, let's, let's do it. And so we hopped in their truck and went to town and, and bought some lumber and some screws and some other things. And when we came back a few hours later with their help and the tools they had, we built a new door jam and it, it wasn't perfect. And it wasn't something that you would want to put on, you know, home and garden magazine, but it secured our home and allowed us to, um, to shut our door. And for, you know, for a long time, we, we left it like that while we saved up uh, to replace it and to replace the other things that were stolen from our home. And I, I tell you, I can't, even all these years later, I get so caught up in emotion thinking of what that simple act of service did in our lives. And that's what we're going to talk about today is this idea of simple service. Because so many times I think we get caught up in the big things of church, right? Like like replacing somebody's home when it burns down or, or coming to uh, someone's aid with tons of money when they experience incredible medical bills and then these massive things, right? Which they're very powerful and they're very emotional. But because we get lost in the big things, we miss the mundane things. We miss the everyday things. And so many times the most important things in our life are things that don't seem that big at the time. But when we look back on our life, those are the things that we remember. And that's what we're going to talk about today is the life of the believer should be a life of service to other people. You know, Jesus said that we should seek first his kingdom. And in the context of that passage, it's wanting things like food and, and, and clothes and, and, and the things that we need for everyday life. And Jesus says, seek first the kingdom and all these things will be added to you. But the command is to seek first his kingdom. And when we seek God's kingdom, that means serving others. 
So I love how in the scriptures, we don't just get prescriptions of things we need to do, right? Love your neighbor like you love yourself, right? Um, forgive as you've been forgiven. You know, when Jesus was asked, teach us to pray, and he tells us, you know, to pray, and we get the Lord's prayer from that. We get prescriptions of things to do. Honor your father and mother, you know, don't have any other gods before me. Those are prescriptions, things we are commanded to do. But a bunch of the Bible, most of it, I think, is description. It's telling us examples of things in our lives. And sometimes they're descriptions of things we shouldn't do, bad examples. And a lot of times, though, they are things that we should do. And if you've got your Bibles, today we're going to pick up in John chapter 6 as we look at this idea of simple service. What are some of the everyday things that we can do to bring God's kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven? How can we seek first God's kingdom in the way we live our lives and the way we treat others? That's through simple service, right? When Jesus told us to love God with all we have and love our neighbor like we love ourselves, these commandments, right? Those are prescriptions of things we should do, but we see this in John chapter 6 in a description. Jesus models this for us. So as we pick up in John chapter 6, let me set the scene for you. Let's read this in context. That in John chapter 6, Jesus has been traveling around the region of Judea, around modern-day Israel. And as he's doing ministries, his, his, the, his followers are growing by the day, by the month. And, and eventually it gets to where thousands and thousands, at one point, historians believe Jesus had between 20 and 25,000 followers. To put that into context, the small town I live in has 13,000 people in it. So it's possibly Jesus had up to two times the amount of people that would be in, in my town following him around, listening to his teaching. And, and learning how to, to be his follower, his disciple. And we see this in John chapter 6, that after Jesus has, has been sharing with them, he, it says this in verse uh, 1, starting in the beginning of John chapter 6. It says, After this, Jesus crossed over to the far side of the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. A huge crowd kept following him wherever he went, because they saw his miraculous signs as he healed the sick. Then Jesus climbed a hill and sat down with his disciples around him. It was nearly time for the Jewish Passover season. Now at this point, most historians agree that the place Jesus was was in the place called Bethsaida, or Bethsaida, some people call it. But in Bethsaida, it is in the north, uh, northeastern part of the Sea of Galilee in modern-day Jordan. It would be on the other side of the Jordan River, on the eastern side of the Jordan River, right? And the area that he was in, if you were to go to this part of the world, is not a very hospitable area. It's got a lot of sand, it's got a lot of rocks, <laughs> and but next to the next to the sea line, or the, the coast of the of the Sea of Galilee, there is, are some grasses and things like that, but it's very barren. If you drive out there now, I've actually been to this location and it's very empty. <laughs> it's not very hospitable. It's not the kind of place you'd want to set up and, and take a vacation. But in verse 5, it says, Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him. Turning to Philip, he asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? Right? These are, these are thousands and thousands of people who have come out to the wilderness to find Jesus, out into the desert, full of rocks and dirt and not much else. Right? And Jesus says, where can we feed all of these people? 
In verse 6, it tells us he was testing Philip, for he already knew what he was going to do. And I love that. I, you know, this is just one situation, but I've often wondered how many times God asks me to do something just to see if I'm willing to go along with it, just to see if I'm willing to trust him, because he already knows what he's going to do. And we see this with Philip, and he says that he already knew what he was going to do. And I want you to see this first, that one of the things that we see here, one of the first things we see modeled in this description of simple service is that God uses people to bring his kingdom. You know, I've often wondered, you know, thinking about theology and studying the Bible and, you know, hermeneutics, the, the proper interpretation of Scripture and all these things. I've often wondered as I've studied the Scriptures and, and tried to learn and, and dig deeper into them, I've often wondered why God uses people. Why doesn't God just show himself in mighty ways, you know, like in the heavens and do amazing, indescribable, unspeakable things to show his love and his presence to people? You know, we see some things like this in, in the Bible, like when, you know, the, the presence of God followed Israel as they wandered in the wilderness, the, the pillar of cloud in the day and the pillar of fire at night. We see those kinds of things. But whenever we look at all of the covenants and promises that God makes people, or that he makes with people, he always partners with people in the process. You know, whether it's the you know, Davidic covenant to always have a king on the throne of the line of David. That's partnering with people. The law, the, the Mosaic covenant with the law of Moses partners with people. The Abrahamic covenant where he says, I'm going to, you know, work through you to create a mighty nation and your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky, right? He's working through people. Even the new covenant Jesus instituted works through people, through the church. And this is the thing that we've got to remember is that God uses people to bring his kingdom. And one of the things that, that is often frustrating as a person that works in, in the church world and in the ministry area, you know, areas of full-time ministry is that, you know, so many times people step back and say, you know, that this whole, you know, bringing the kingdom and ministry thing, this is really the job of the pastor. It's the job of the minister, the job of the evangelist, right? What we call the five-fold ministry. Right? We think, oh, this is for chaplains, these are for you know, prophets, these are for, for specific called out people. Not for me, right? I, I'm not that great. I'm, I'm just a teacher. I'm just a lawyer. I'm just a doctor. I'm just a plumber. I'm just an electrician. I'm just plain old me. But I want you to recognize that God always uses people to bring his kingdom. This is why Jesus chose 12 disciples that we call the apostles, right? This is why Jesus told them, go into all the world and spread the gospel, right? The great commission that's been handed down to us through the centuries. God always uses people. And we see this because instead of saying, hey, I'm going to feed these people, he starts with Philip and says, hey, where can we buy bread to feed all of these people? First, we see that God always uses people to bring his kingdom. And look at what happens in verse 7 with Philip makes this pretty understandable reply. It says, Philip replied, even if we worked for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. I mean, could you imagine what your grocery bill would be to feed, you know, between 10 and 20,000, maybe 25,000 people? I can't, I can't even imagine. I, I have friends that have put on conferences and things like that. And these things have cost tens of thousands of dollars just to feed hundreds of people, Right much less thousands of people. So Philip's reply makes perfect sense. But look at what happens. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. 
<laughs> and can you imagine how silly this must have sounded? There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish. And he asked this question, but what good is that with this huge crowd? Now, here's something you need to understand, that this would be a young boy. More than likely, he would be um, not old enough to work with the family business or on the family farm, but he would have been too old for school, right? Once a a young boy reached age 12 to 13 when they would have their bar mitzvah, they would be technically, they would be an adult. But for many jobs, they wouldn't be quite ready to, to do that. They'd be going through a, a period of apprenticeship. And if they weren't old enough, a lot of times they'd kind of just been sent out on their own. They wouldn't be, they're too old to go to school, too young to go to work. And so they'd be kind of on their own. And so this young boy was most, most likely one of those, you know, here's a, here's a 12, 13, maybe 14 year old boy, young man. And he's been sent out with his lunch, more than likely from his mom, of, of five barley loaves and two fish. Now, uh, a, a barley loaf was a very cheap bread, right? Barley was not as, as nice as flour. And if you've ever had bread made from barley, you know that it is it is it's more coarse. It has a rough texture. It doesn't have a, a nice chew to it, and what they call a tooth to normal bread, right? That's made with wheat flour. And so this would have been a poor boy's lunch. This is why he's you know, probably out wandering around by himself. That He has some food, but this would not be a wealthy person's lunch. And two fish, right? This is going to feed him, you know, through the day. It's not going to feed thousands and thousands of people. But this shows us the next step in the process. That not only in, this, in, the, in the model Jesus sets for us do we see that God uses people to bring his kingdom. But next we see that God simply wants us to be willing. He just wants us to be willing. To, to trust him in the process. To say, okay God, whatever I have is yours. It may not be much. But it's yours. I, I surrender it to you. Because honestly, on the grand scale of things, what we have, even if we're super wealthy in light of eternity, is not much. I mean, this was just five pieces of bread and two fish to feed thousands of people. But Jesus uses them in such a, a mighty and powerful way that that's famous, right? And even non-Christians know about Jesus feeding the multitudes with bread and fish. We know what's going to happen next, but we've got to understand that it cannot happen until we are willing. God will never force himself on us. We always have to partner with him. We have to be willing to say, Lord, here I am. Everything I have is yours. It may be small, but you can have it. And we know what happens next in verse 10. Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000, right? So we said that adding women and children would make this go from 10, 15, 20, maybe even 25,000 people. Even if it's just 5,000 people, right? Even if the guesswork of adding women and children to this figure, even if it's just 5,000, that's a lot of people to feed. In verse 11, we see the miracle. Then Jesus took the loaves gave thanks to God and distributed them to the people. Afterward, he did the same with the fish, and they all ate as much as they wanted. How amazing is that? This is miraculous. Now, what you've got to see is this, this points back to another time in Scripture, in 2 Kings chapter 4, where Elisha miraculously uh, 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 in, allows grain to be multiplied so that everybody in the area could have enough bread to eat. 
And this is Jesus showing that he is greater than the prophets, right? Jesus, in another point in scripture, says that there's one before you who's greater than Jonah, right? Because Jonah was a prophet. That Jesus wants them to understand that he's not just a good man. He's not just a teacher. He's not just a prophet. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is God in skin. Jesus would say things like, the Father and I are one. He told Philip later at the Last Supper, when Philip said, Lord, you know, show us the Father and that will be enough. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus is showing these people that he is better than the prophets. But he's also equating himself with God because when they were in the wilderness, Jesus, or God fed the people of Israel manna for bread and quail for meat. And Jesus is showing that in the same way that God could meet their earthly needs miraculously then, he can meet their earthly needs miraculously now. And so this is a very powerful connection that if you don't know the context of seeing it connected to the prophet Elisha and to the time in the wilderness where they wandered before they went into the promised land, where we see God's supernatural provision, where Jesus is proving himself and showing himself real to these people. And in verse 12, it says, After everyone was full, Jesus told the disciples, No, gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. Gather the leftovers. You know, we live in a society that's a very much a throwaway society, right? When our electronics get too old, we throw them away and buy new ones, right? And if we, you know, eat meals and we have leftovers because we're so blessed and they rot in our fridge and we throw them out. But you need to understand, and this is the next point, that not only does God want to work with people, God always partners with people, and of course then we have to be willing, we have to recognize that God never wastes anything, right? I mean, if Jesus can multiply, you know, bread and fish, then he could have just told them, hey, throw that on the ground. I can always make more. But we see here a very clear principle in this model Jesus is setting for us is that even the leftovers are important. Because when you add up all the little things, it makes something big. And God never wastes anything. And I could spend a whole message just talking on how God never wastes anything, but I want you to understand that even the broken parts of your life, even the dark periods of your life story, even the times where you don't like to think about them because they're so painful. God never wastes anything, even our brokenness. Even when we failed, God still uses us. God restores us. Think back through Scripture of all the people who have failed God. David, who became a murderer and adulterer. Moses, who became a murderer and a fugitive. Right? All these people that betrayed God's trust, even Peter, right? who would deny even knowing Jesus. God always seeks restoration. And now what I love about each of those people in their life stories is that when they had been redeemed and restored, their stories are written on the pages of Scripture to remind us that God never wastes anything. Whether it's time in waiting, whether it's time in pain and struggle, whether it's the good times, the mountaintop moments of life, God never wastes anything. And in this model, we see Jesus telling them to gather the broken pieces. In verse 13, it says, So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. You see, each one of them holding a little bit of scrap in their hands was probably not much, a bite or two, right? 
But when they collected them all together, it made twelve baskets full of leftovers that could be shared with other people. Now, I recognize in our modern sensibilities, right, leftover bread would not be something we'd want to hold on to because we're so spoiled in our first world problems. But in this time, where people had to make all of these things by hand to work, to till the ground, to plant the seed, to, 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 to tend the crops, to harvest the grain, to grind it into flour, and to make it into bread. This is a lot of work for this bread. This bread was precious. And Jesus collected all of those scraps so they could be used again to feed somebody. And the same thing's true of the things in our lives, that the broken pieces of our lives can be gathered by God to be used to help someone else, to feed someone else's spirit. It's not fun ever to tell the dark parts of my life story, of the times I've messed up and the times I've gone wrong. But you know, it's so comforting to people when I share my story with them and they recognize that if God can do a miracle in my life, uh, He can do a miracle in their life too. That if we're still here, there's still hope. If we still have a pulse, we still have a purpose. And Jesus is doing the same thing with these broken pieces of bread to remind us that God never wastes anything. And we see this, that when the people, in verse 14, it says, When the people saw him do this miraculous sign, they exclaimed, Surely he is the prophet we have been expecting. You see, why did they think that? Because they made the connections we talked about earlier. As Jewish people who knew the scriptures, they would have connected this to when Elisha was able to miraculously feed you know, all of these people with all this leftover grain all this harvested grain that wouldn't have been enough on its own, but they miraculously multiplied through God's mighty power. Or when God, day after day, fed the Israelites in the wilderness of the desert with bread and with meat. The same thing happens here, and they recognize that this man must be a prophet, that we've been waiting, the Messiah. But this brings us to our big truth. You see, first we see that God always uses people to bring his kingdom, and that we simply have to be willing And then we see that God never wastes anything. It's our big truth for the day, that with God, our little becomes much. With God, our little becomes much. And if you feel like your life and your abilities and your time, talent, and treasure is not that much, how do you think that little boy felt with a few pieces of bread and a couple of fish? I'm sure when they asked him for that, that he thought, well, okay, this is my lunch, but what are you going to do with that? What could you possibly do for these thousands and thousands of people? I want you to recognize that you don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a minister, a preacher, an evangelist, a prophet, an apostle. You don't have to be any of those things to be in ministry. You see, the moment you give your life to Christ, you become part of his kingdom, which means you become part of the the process of bringing his kingdom. I love this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Starting in verse 19, where Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, he said, For God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. And he gave us this wonderful message of reconciliation. And if we stopped there, we'd say, okay, well, sure, you're the apostles. You've been sent out to spread the gospel. That's what, that's what God called you to do. Jesus gave you the Great Commission. But look at what he says in verse 20. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making his appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. Paul wants the church to realize that God is using us in the process. Every one of us, when we become a follower of Jesus, we become ambassadors. 
I don't know if you've ever met an ambassador from another country, but their job is to leave their country and their culture and come in and be part of another nation to bring their culture there and represent it on foreign soil. And don't get me wrong, I'm a proud American, I'm a patriot. I, I serve my country proudly. But I tell you, I recognize that more than my American citizenship, I have a heavenly citizenship. And by living here in this world, you and I, we are ambassadors of God's kingdom, that we bring his territory every time we show kindness to someone, when we serve someone, when we go the extra mile to go out of our way to help them. And so what do we do with this? You say, James, okay, I get it. With God, my little becomes much. That just like this, this young boy sharing his bread and his fish, that in the hands of Jesus, anything is possible, right? What did Jesus say when, when you know, that so many times he said, you know, he said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible, right? He said that multiple times. So what do we do? We're looking at our, our, our little bit, our little pieces of bread, our little fish, our time, talent, and treasure, and saying, God, how in the world could you possibly use me? I want to give you three feet to faith steps for your homework for this week. First, I want you to start by saying that, God, you can have it all. God, I give you what I have. It may not be much. There may not be a lot of money in my bank account. I may not have a lot of things in my life. I may not have a lot of time in my schedule, and I may not have a lot of talents, but I have something, and what, what I have is yours. God, you can have it. But here's what most of us do. We give God our little, <laughs> and we keep most of it for ourselves. We give God a, a 10% check when we get a paycheck, and we say, okay, the rest is ours, and I can live how I want to. But no, God wants us to give him what we have and say, yes, Lord, you've given me these things to steward, but ultimately they're yours. Whether they're tools in our toolboxes or cars in our driveways or, or, or a roof over our head that can help provide shelter for people when they're struggling. One time before we had children, when we had built our home and recognized that, that we had extra rooms that we had built for children that we had not had yet, there was a young couple in our church that was down on their, on their luck financially. They were struggling to get new jobs and, and they didn't have a place to live. And so for about six months, we invited them into our home while they got on their feet and started their life again. It's actually one of the sweetest periods of, of time in our, in our young marriage life where we got to build that relationship with them. And even though we don't live together, we live in different parts of you know different states, but we still had that, that kinship from the time we spent together and we were able to give what we had. It wasn't much. I didn't have enough to give them their own home, but I could share what I had for a season, right? That 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 excuse me that that father and son that came and helped build a new door jam for our home. It wasn't much. They some tools, some wood, and some screws, but it made a big difference to, in my life. I still think about it today. Why? Because with God, our little becomes much, and we have to give God what we have for that to start. And I say, God, it's not much, but it's yours. But then. We don't sit back and let God do all the work. We're, we got to become part of the process. Jesus was multiplying the bread and the fish, but the disciples were handing it out. They were part of the process. God always uses people, and he wants us to be part of the process too. We don't just write a check, give it to the church, and sit back. No, we want to be involved. We've got to be involved. God invites us into that process. And I love this in the church community that we're plugged into right now. One of the things I love about it is that we don't have members in our church community. We have partners. 
that that in other church communities I've been part of in the past that they you would become a member of the church and you'd be voted in and approved and you could vote on things and things like that but when we became part of this church community they invited us into partnership with them why because they wanted to use our time talent treasures in that community if we can play music, we'd play in the praise band. If we could help take care of children, we'd be used in the nursery. If we could help with you know, security to keep things safe, or, or if we were just saying hey to people, we'd be greeters. Whatever is needed, we partnered with the church community. And God wants us to do the same thing, to be part of the process. So we don't just surrender what we have to God. We also become part of the process. And then number three, we got to trust God with the results. That little boy trusted Jesus with his fish and bread and let Jesus do the work of multiplying it. That's what's got to happen in your life and my life. We give God what we have. We be part of the process. And then ultimately we trust God with the results. Because with God, our little becomes much. Don't let your recognition of what little you have stop you from giving it to God. Give it all to God. Give God what you have. Be part of the process and then trust Him with the result. And I promise you, you'll see that with God, our little will become much. So I pray that this would bless your day, encourage you, and help you to live the Christian life a little bit better. May God bless you.